Good evening, everybody. Power to the people. Power to the people. Power to the people. I'm uh, very happy to, uh, to be here tonight in support of our comrades. Uh, I saw them in Washington, but by the time I got down there, the uh, embassy was closed, and I was just waving at them through the windows, and we had some crazy plan to get food in, which didn't work. But anyway, but I was trying. I was trying. Anyhow, when you hear about everybody here, you're not going to be surprised that they did what they did that they took this stand for democracy, for international law, and against U.S. criminality. It, uh, it's not surprising when you hear about them. So uh, Margaret Flowers, MD, was, uh, she's co-founder of the Embassy Protection Collective, and she's co-director of Popular Resistance, and uh, she organized the Peace Congress to end U.S. wars at home and abroad. Uh, about a year ago, she and uh, others, Kevin amongst them, they went as a delegation to Venezuela. And it was very important that uh, uh, people, I don't want to say Americans, because Venezuelans are Americans, USians, make these trips and make their presence known so that people all over the world know that there are folks in this country who oppose their policies. So she was, uh, she and Kevin and uh, others from the U.S. Peace Council sponsored trip from Black Alliance for Peace and other organizations traveled to Venezuela last year. Uh, she's very well known for her activism as an advocate for single-payer national health insurance. Uh, she co-hosts Clearing the Fog with Kevin Zeese, and she's a writer as well, and her work appears regularly in places like Truth Dig, Counterpunch, Dissident Voice, and of course, Popular Resistance. She's a national co-chair of the Green Party of the United States, and was a Senate candidate as a Green, uh, on the Green Party ticket in 2016. So, without further ado, uh, Margaret Flowers. First off, I really want to thank the Embassy Protector Defense Committee. Sarah and Margaret are members of that defense committee, and it has been so important for us in facing these uh, charges, these federal charges, that there are people who are organizing to support us uh, during this time. And I also want to thank all the other members here who came down to the embassy, because when we talk about the Embassy Protection Collective, it's huge. It was hundreds of people. There were, you know, we did public events inside of the embassy initially, like every night we had educational or cultural events. And so many people came to those events at the height of the uh, action, we had more than 70 people staying overnight in the embassy. And then starting on April 30th, when the pro-coup folks took the embassy under siege and people were no longer allowed to come in, so many people came down and were supportive outside of the embassy. And I can just tell you for us that we know it was really scary for the folks who were outside facing the violence and the threats and the, just the racist, homophobic, misogynist behavior. Um, we were also a little scared inside the embassy because they kept trying to break in. And it, just seeing folks across the street, 
there keeping an eye on things, there in solidarity, and some people who stayed out there all night, and some people who would help out like when we heard weird noises and we couldn't see what was going on, and they would go and look. And it just um, This was really a collective effort and couldn't have happened without the participation of everybody. So I just want to keep that in mind, that this is a really big, when we say the Embassy Protection Collective, it's a very big group. And thank you so much to all of you who were part of it. So I just want to talk a little bit about kind of why we were there. So as um, Margaret said, in March of last year, we were part of the U.S. Peace Council delegation to Venezuela, and we arrived there as the power. They had this nationwide power outage, which they determined later on was a result of cyber, a cyber attack on their electrical grid. Go figure, the software was developed in Houston, <laughs> and, and they tracked the attack to Houston and Chicago. And then as they tried to get it back up again, there were these other attacks inside the country on the infrastructure that kept kind of knocking it out. So we were down there, and... We were seeing in the U.S. news all this stuff about there was chaos in Venezuela and it was crazy and they couldn't get their power on and we're down there and a lot of the power was back. It would kind of come in and out. Um, But things were very calm. They were completely calm. People were just dealing with it. They were, oh, we heard that they were getting dirty water from the rivers because they couldn't get water. But Venezuela actually is one of the largest freshwater sources in the world, and they have a lot of springs. And so people were going to these natural springs and helping each other collect water. So all the things we were hearing in the media were really the opposite of what was happening down there. And that's, that's just true generally. If you hear something in the corporate media here about Venezuela, it's probably not true. Um, including that Juan Guaido was the president. <laughs> so we were down there, and... So you know Juan Guaido announced that he was the president on January 23rd of last year. He was the president of the defunct National Assembly. It's not actually a functioning body at this point. And uh, the U.S., of course, backed him. And then, of course, all of the U.S. allies like Brazil and Colombia and European nations, you know, Canada, yeah, he's the president. Um, But the coup failed. In Venezuela, really, he was a joke. And he would call a protest and nobody would show up or he'd cancel it because he knew nobody was going to show up. And, and so really, the only way they could give the appearance of this coup succeeding was by, in the United States, making it look like it was real, right? So when we were down there, we saw that the UN consulate in New York was handed over to the coup people, and that the attache offices, Venezuelan military attache offices in D.C. were handed over. And folks tried to get out there as soon as they heard what was going on and stop it from happening, and thanks to all of you in New York who were part of that. But... They were on the outside, and the police had already let them in, so there's not a lot you can do at that point. So in April, uh, April 9th, I think it was, of last year, the Organization of American States changed its rules so that they could force through a vote to recognize Juan Guaido as the president. Prior to that, the, the main rule, the normal rule they have is a two-thirds majority to recognize someone as the president of a country, and they couldn't get that. So they just changed the rules and said, okay, we'll go with a simple majority. So what kind of a message does that send to other countries that are part of the OAS? Like, if we don't like who your president is, we'll just change our rules and recognize somebody else. So that was pretty ridiculous. But we knew at that point that they were going to try to take the main embassy. In fact, Juan Guaido's people, Carlos Vecchio and Gustavo Tare, were actually using the Georgetown, Venezuela building as their address on their website. (laughs) Like, they already had it. 
So uh, Medea Benjamin was down there first and folks from Answer, and we got down there the, the next day and said, you know, can we be in the embassy? Because if we're inside here, we have a better chance maybe of keeping them from giving it over illegally without the permission of the elected government. And the staff said, you know, okay. And so we were initially just kind of staying there and trying to figure out a strategy. And we decided to form the Embassy Protection Collective, Answer, and Code Pink, and Popular Resistance. And then we decided we just needed to get a lot of attention for this, and how do we do that? And so that was why we held the public events. People came and talked about what was happening in Palestine, or in Iran, or Honduras, or you know, various... We had John Kiriakou, the CIA whistleblower, the night before the, um, the OAS diplomats were to leave the country, and we anticipated that if the U.S. government might try to take it over that next day. Uh, John Kiriakou gave a talk on an inside view of regime change. And that was so interesting for us to hear and, and amazing to have that going on in the embassy. And if you want to hear an amazing talk, it's on the Embassy Protection Collective Facebook page because he really talked about this whole regime change office that exists inside the CIA and how they operate. So that's, you know, we were there to try to stop the U.S., from violating international law. The Vienna Convention is very clear that embassies are inviolable. And we were there with the permission of the elected government. And we were there to try to hold that space while the United States and Venezuela negotiated for mutual protecting power agreements. Because this is traditionally what happens when countries break off diplomatic relations. They find a third country to be the protecting power for their embassy. And in fact, those third countries can offer what's called an intersection and they can offer some diplomatic services. So this was the, you know, the, the solution that made the most sense and it's something, the U.S. I think already has 26 protecting power agreements going on. So it's not unusual and we knew that the U.S. had asked the Maduro government to recognize Switzerland as a protecting power and Venezuela was trying to find a country. Eventually they found Turkey that agreed to be their protecting power. And so we said, well, you know, once that agreement is in place, we'll leave. You know, thing, things will be protected, and this will be a path towards peace, because that would start. You know, it would not escalate the conflict, and it perhaps could start more negotiations between Venezuela and the United States to to find a diplomatic re resolution to what was happening. So that's why we were there, and also I think I can't speak without mentioning the fact that the United States has been waging war against Venezuela for two decades now, ever since the Bolivarian process began, and the unilateral coercive measures or sanctions that the United States is imposing on Venezuela are illegal, they violate international law, they violate the United Nations Charter, and the Center for Economic and Policy Research estimated that in just two years, period 2017 and 2018, those sanctions contributed to the deaths of 40,000 Venezuelans. So sanctions are war, sanctions do kill, and they're still happening, and the U.S. is still trying to intervene, so it's really important that we do whatever we can to keep speaking out and demanding that the intervention and the sanctions stop, and I'll end there. Thanks. I have to uh, introduce my co-chair, Sarah Flanders whom you all know, but I'm going to introduce her anyway. Sarah is the coordinator of the International Action Center. She and I are both on the coordinating committee of UNAP, United National Anti-War Coalition. Uh, she's also involved with the coalition against U.S. foreign military bases. 
She writes for Workers World magazine, and she's currently coordinating the Sanctions Kill campaign. Margaret just mentioned that uh, sanctions are war by other means and are deadly. That 40,000 people in Venezuela alone have been killed by U.S. sanctions. And for those of you who may not know, let me just explain a little. When the U.S. imposes sanctions on another country, they don't just say that the United States won't do business with this country or that financial transactions are illegal. They sanction any other country that dares to do business with the targeted nation. And that means U.S. sanctions are international sanctions. So people in Iran, for example, are dying because they cannot access cancer drugs. People in Zimbabwe, Eritrea, Nicaragua, 30-some-odd nations are under U.S. sanctions, which are creating terrible suffering all over the world. So I'm urging you, it's sanctionskill.org? That's right. Yes, sanctionskill.org. Check it out. Uh, become an endorser and come to these meetings and uh, help us move forward with Sanctions Kill. And now, Sarah Founders. Thank you, Mark. And all that because um, I'm going to next introduce David Paul. But let me ask here, because I see so many people that I think were involved, uh, just to, to raise your hand if you were inside or outside during those 37 long days. I know there were caravans that went down. There were, uh, there's other people here who've been to Venezuela um, and in all sorts of solidarity delegations over the years. And I had actually an opportunity to be in Venezuela when Margaret and Kevin were there, and the lights were out the day we... We landed, landed many hours late and went into a city without anything except that there was real people's order. And that made a huge difference because you could know what would happen here if the lights went out. So, so it really is a very different thing. Even if there's no public transportation, there's no street lights. And yet people are organized. So David Paul is someone who watched for decades how this government has helped to destabilize and overthrow elected governments around the world that results in poverty and violence and injustice. And so David is one of those people who just responded, you could say really from the gut, what kind of action he felt a responsibility to speak out his third trip to, to Venezuela was in last year, and he saw the economic crisis, the resulting suffering that was going on of a government that had provided so much and then was suddenly unable to provide some of the most meager supplies. And to, to really to, to protest those sanctions, to protest that shutdown, he joined the... Um, Embassy Protection uh, Collective in Washington and was there during difficult times and right up to the arrest in the end. So let me ask David to come up here and describe his experiences. Okay. Hi. Um, 
I'm going to leave a lot of the details of the embassy, which some of you might be wanting to know more about, uh, for Kevin and Adrian, um, and sort of give it a little impression about what brought me there. I live in San Francisco, and uh, probably you're not surprised, but there's many people uh, don't know much about what's going on in the world and um, believe a lot what they see in the media. And so I felt a responsibility to, um, well, in, in my own journey, to understand what's going on in the world and in other countries, looking at history was very important. And looking at history in terms of Latin America and Venezuela, I always remember this quote by Simon Bolivar from over 100 years ago of saying that the United States is destined to plague Latin America in the name of liberty. And that, that same dynamic is still going on and seen it for so many years. I was in Venezuela, um, came back from Venezuela on a trip to investigate the, san- the effects of the sanctions. And a week later, I heard this webinar call saying, come and make history in the Venezuelan embassy. And uh, it just seemed like a natural thing to flow from what I saw in Venezuela, the injustice, uh, talking to farmers in tears that their, their jobs, their, they couldn't sell their products, couldn't get parts for their tractors, people who very worried about their families. They couldn't find medicines for their parents with heart failure and numerous, numerous other things. And when I'm in San Francisco and just where I've been, my family and trying to talk to people, and uh, it seems like I have to start from the beginning. I know I don't have to with most of you, but to talk about, they, people have this notion that the United States' job or role in the world is to defend democracies. It's just the opposite. It's to find them and crush them. Any country that takes an independent economic or political path, and Venezuela is a prime example of that. Also, it's been important for me to explain that if you really step back, we are a gangster in the world. We are throwing our, no, our government, not us, but our government, not obeying international law, uh, not obeying the charter in, of the United Nations and treaties that we've signed, and just basic plunder and theft around the world. And Venezuela, being the sort of epicenter of this struggle in Latin America and the U.S.'s attempt to try to gain control politically and economically, Venezuela is the target. And the attempted coups, the ongoing attempted coup is part of that, this economic war, which is really economic terrorism, and we saw firsthand in my delegation that it's actually killing people. You don't see bodies lying in the streets, they're in the morgues of hospitals because they couldn't get medicines. They couldn't get dialysis equipment, and I know from working in a hospital for 30 years, if you don't get dialysis, there's no other options, you die. For people to choose that, I don't get to say. Um, And this, um, so much of this trying to get through to people who know little, uh, may be curious, but all they hear is um, what I often hear in San Francisco. Oh, I heard that Maduro, that Venezuela is a horrible place, and where did you hear it? I heard it on NPR. And, that, <laughs> and that's where it stops. They don't look beyond that. And it's the propaganda that props this kind of thinking, this myth that we're doing good around the world. It might be complicated, they're not sure what's going on, but we must be doing good. And I know that's not true, and I know many of you do. It's thick throughout the social media. You see it in films, this um, normalization of militarization, this 
I didn't know about it till a few weeks ago, this Jack Ryan series on Netflix. You know, the scenario is Russians are putting nuclear bombs in Venezuela, and he's got to root them out. And uh, such a pretext for an invasion. It's more, I haven't clearly more seen. And the main thing is they don't give any context. The critique we hear in, in the media, you can't find toilet paper. You can't find this. You can't find that. Must be the government. Corrupt. They're incompetent. They never talk about the sanctions. They never say that our government is strangling the economy, blockading medicines and food getting in. And it's almost like, I mean, it's not exactly the same, but agencies in this country, you want to get rid of the EPA, you defund it, you take all the investigators away and then say, look, it's not doing its job, not doing any good, got to get rid of it. And the hypocrisy, I, I try to, I think for me, analogies work help or um, help me understand things and just to see the world. And then when you, I think many people have a basic fairness if, if uh, you talk to them about things and the hypocrisy. If, uh, I always try to talk to people just if, if our government uh, received the kind of attacks and threats and blockades and uh, sanctions from another country, we wouldn't tolerate it. We do it to other countries. It doesn't seem like it, it makes a difference because it's a double standard. And I don't think people really see it, but I'm, I've always tried to tell people, put yourself in their shoes. If your parents couldn't get medicines that they need for their heart, how would you feel? And, and there's a million other examples, but that's what we're doing to that country. And, and during the, the whole time in the embassy, and well, in talking with my family, they say, why did you do this? And what's going on? Was it worth it? And... Um, for me, yes, it was worth it because those people were struggling. And I was so impressed with the, the dignity and determination of the Venezuelan people just to be free of this kind of coercive measures, these attacks, the threats, economic, psychological terrorism that's on these people. And I was so impressed and came back with a feeling of responsibility to um, hold our government accountable for what they're doing to this country. And I... Th- feel responsibility not to come back and join the re-elect Maduro presidential campaign. It's not so much about Maduro versus Guaido. It's not so much about, and there's a lot of critiques from different sides about what's going on there. It's not about whether Maduro or his government is socialist enough. And I think we should stay away from trying to scrutinize the revolutionary process in Venezuela. They should do this. They should do that. That kind of scrutiny we should put on our own country. Because regime change, regime cha- if you try to compare the election process, the forms of democracy, we've got a lot to learn from Venezuela and other countries. And so we ought to put that scrutiny on our own country and simply let them live in peace and develop their society uh, the way they decide, uh, in independent and free. And that's what we should support, no matter what your specific feelings are about the uh, Maduro government. And that's what I think is a general thought and feeling from people in the Embassy Protection Collective, is to defend the sovereignty and the right of the Venezuelan people to determine their own uh, way of life. And that's why I came there, and I'm sticking with it. Well, I think this, this whole trial, which I think Kevin and Adrian might talk more about, is kind of a sham. 
But uh, I guess we didn't expect much better from a federal court with this administration, with this government. And that's a a whole other fight in itself. But uh, thanks for coming and hearing us out. Thank you. I thought it was interesting. Adrienne Pine, I've not had the honor of uh, pleasure of meeting her, but I love this uh, description, a militant medical anthropologist. That's the only kind of medical anthropologist we ought to have, let's face it. And uh, she's worked all over the world, in uh, Honduras, Mexico, Korea, the U.S., Egypt, and Cuba. She's um, worked inside the, uh, the academy and uh, outside as well. She has worked quite a lot in Honduras, one of the uh, countries that is suffering from a U.S. intervention, which took place during the Obama administration. This is bipartisan, you know. And uh, she's been a spokesperson for the people all over the world who've been impacted by these policies. And uh, she's also, like Margaret Flowers, done research on the impact of our healthcare system, our corporate-run healthcare system, and what it does uh, to all of us and to us as a people. So our uh, next speaker is our defender, Adrian Pine. So I moved to Washington, D.C. on around June 21st of 2009. Just over a week later, the United States-supported coup took place in Honduras against um, elected President Manuel uh, Zelaya in that country. In the years that have followed, I have seen that country rapidly descend into what I call neoliberal fascism, Some of you, since we're in New York, might have been aware or present at the trial in October of Tony Hernandez in the U.S. uh, Southern District Court of New York, where he was being tried on major drug trafficking charges. This is the brother of the current president, the unelected president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, um, who is a nothing more than a vile dictator um, in order to maintain his power after blatantly losing an election in 2017. Um, he and his security forces killed over 40 people and imprisoned uh, hundreds of people illegally for protesting against the illegal, illegal seizure of his government. Of course, there was no way they could have done this without the full support of the U.S. State Department, of the U.S. government, just as there's no way that the coup would have stood in the first place without the full support of the Hillary Clinton State Department. So what we have, what I have seen happen as a direct result of a U.S.-supported coup in a country that I've been working in for over two decades is utterly devastating. I've had countless friends, family members murdered um, as a result, uh, and I would say again, a direct result of the coup, of the political violence 
that is tied to the U.S. supported, again, usurpation of democratic processes. And Honduras wasn't even in a revolutionary process. It was something much less than what was going on in Venezuela. But it was, in fact, precisely because Mel Celaya had created some initial alliances with Chavez at the time that he was seen as such a threat that he needed to be taken out. Since that time, what we have seen is one after another after another coup in Latin America modeled after what I think is a sort of new kind of coup. It's a coup that's draped in constitutional legitimacy. So that happened in Paraguay, of course, in Brazil with a coup against Dilma. And, you know, now what's going on in Bolivia is just absolutely atrocious. But it's got this sort of legalistic veneer that is only possible with the full support of the United States government and the organization of American states, which itself has become a neoliberal fascist organization and nothing more. Now, one thing that I learned in those very few first few months that I was living in Washington, D.C., was the incredible importance of the interlocked organizations within that town, the think tanks, the universities, like my own, like Georgetown, George Washington, George Mason, that all function as centers of regime change operations supporting and providing the um, intellectual legitimacy for violent U.S. policy carried out in and against Latin Americans. And sort of over the past decades, seeing the violence of my own colleagues in supporting regime change in against Venezuela, I mean, this has been an ongoing effort at American University, the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, the Human Rights Program at the Washington College of Law, have time and time and time again invited incredibly violent leaders of the opposition to speak as if they were human rights defenders and have prevented anybody who has a different perspective from being incorporated in the conversation. And so that kind of violence, intellectual violence, which also you know is masquerading as, as education, I think um, has really pushed me to a position where I've recognized that just Teaching, just teaching critical thought to my students is not enough. As educators, as academics, as intellectuals, public intellectuals, uh, organic intellectuals, academic intellectuals, we need to put our bodies on the line. Because the bodies of all of Latin America are on the line because of our policies, our government's policies that are funded by our tax dollars. And, and it's harming us as well. These same policies that are usurping democratic practices in Latin America are usurping our own democracy here in the United States. And the hardest hit communities of our, are, of course, black and brown communities that are having their towns and their cities taken over by, what do they call them, the manager, what happened in Flint? Emergency 
emergency managers. I mean, this is what you see happening. Exactly what they're doing in Latin America is what they're doing to the the most vulnerable um, and oppressed populations in the United States. And if we if we don't stand up, if we don't put ourselves in a little bit of at a little bit of risk, um, we're risking so much more. So for me, it was just such an honor to be part of this fantastic group of people. And I'm so grateful to all of you who were outside the embassy and to all of you who have come here today. I mean, even in a worst-case scenario, if we do go to prison, if we do have that year-long sentence and $100,000 per person fine that they're threatening us with, if we have managed to have an impact to support the Venezuelan people and their struggle for sovereignty and against the fascism that U.S. intervention represents, then I will be really, really happy about that. So thank you all. If you've seen, actually, these videos, uh, this slideshow, as folks are speaking, that was the image, uh, really, of folks waving from the windows when there was this mob outside. It was really dangerous. It was dangerous for people outside who were gathering again and again, but you could only feel so apprehensive for those who were inside at night as people were trying to break in basement doors, come in windows, come in through the roof. I I, I mean, it really was an incredible 37 days. I don't know how anyone slept. And and then when the food and water was turned off um, and and we would ask, how are you cooking things? And and got back a reply, do you know you can make pasta with cold water? That, that was one response. I thought, okay, they're, they're going to make it. They're, they're going to, you know, they're going to figure this out um, and how to hook up batteries and all kinds of things. So it's a pretty resourceful group. And for the folks here, I think that's what you know. That's the most important thing. Are we resourceful when things get really hard? So Kevin Zeese is a co-founder of the Embassy Collective, uh, Embassy Protection Collective. He's visited Venezuela twice in the past year. And in these visits, he really developed an understanding. Maybe it's a little bit more than a year now. Probably two years. And uh, part of also being an election observer. As I say, the, the delegation when there was no electricity there, wasn't that sort of of what was to come (laughs) in the embassy, too. And in his meetings and conversations, really, he was urged to return to the U.S. and explain what was really going on and to act in solidarity. And that is something that I think every one of these four individuals have done around the country. They did during all the people who participated inside. And there were a lot of people inside that we also want to salute uh, and, and also all of those outside, um, who, and, and the folks who from all over the country were sending messages and streaming and making donations and all of that. It's, it's how we build this movement and keep going. So, Kevin Zies. Thank you. Well, it's so great to have both of you uh, moderating. I can tell you, we are so honored as two Caucasian people, uh, when we get 
from the published in Black Agenda Report. Yes. It is such an honor. That is one of the great publications. One of the great publications. If you don't read Black Agenda Report, you're missing really important analysis. It's very important. And I, I, I really want to thank uh, all of you for being here. I can tell you that uh, we have traveled in California, in Illinois, Florida. Uh, now we're doing New York. We have New Jersey ahead, Philadelphia, Connecticut, Massachusetts. And everywhere we go, uh, people are coming out. And uh, I'm always amazed at how many people had watched the live stream uh, while this was going on. Uh, it's just amazing that the corporate media, and you really got to see how the government controls the media with this. This is like a made-for-TV event. I mean, the conflict was every day for 37 days. You had this violent mob of racist, homophobic, anti-female, horrible coup mongers. And you had these peace activists outside as well, conflict with them, us inside, trying to bring food up through the windows and through the garage. It was just, and the police helping the mob, the coup mob, is just crazy. I mean, postmen tried to deliver food and were stopped, you know, from delivering food for us. Amazon tried to deliver food and was stopped from delivering food. So it was, it was quite, but it was all blacked out. It wasn't until four people arrested at the Venezuelan embassy. That's the story. None of the context of 37 days and why we were out there or who we were. I mean, I, I, as, as I said, I was in Venezuela for the uh, re-election of President Maduro. Uh, and I uh, was there with hundreds of election observers. There were more than 300 election observers. Uh, I was actually there more as they brought me down as media, a, a media group in, in California, uh, subsidized my trip to go down as a, a reporter. I never think of myself as a reporter, but people always tell me I'm a journalist. I, I, I don't think of myself that way, but uh, I appreciate that people see that. And uh, one thing that the 300 plus international election observers all unanimously agreed on was that election met all the standards of democracy under international law. Unanimous. And we call it a dictatorship. I've been an election integrity activist in the United States as well, working to end these unverifiable electronic voting machines. And I can tell you the Venezuelan elections are run much better than U.S. elections in many states. First, they have a 95% plus registration level. 95%. They're trying to get to 100%. Because the right to vote is in their constitution, unlike ours. And so they have to make that right something that people can actually exercise. So they actually, the government takes responsibility for registering people. Here, our government takes responsibility for deregistering people. It's a kind of an interesting difference. And they, they do some amazing, I can talk a long time about Venezuelan democracy from the grassroots up, direct participatory democracy, which is an amazing experiment that they're trying to build to a future way of rule, direct democracy rather than representative democracy. It's an amazing story. But I'll just say about the elections, they do several things that no other country does. First off, they start with a fingerprint. Every voter, fingerprint to start, fingerprint to finish. So there can be no fraud. It's impossible to have fraud on that to vote. The second thing they do is that no other country does. At the end of the election day, before the vote is officially counted, 54% of the machines in every precinct are randomly selected for a hand count because they have both an electronic vote and a paper vote. And so people get a, they vote electronically, they get a paper ballot, they look at it, put it in the ballot box. At the end of the day, 54% of machines in each precinct randomly selected, they take the ballot, they show it to all the parties running, the public, the media, they show every ballot, they count them all. Every ballot is counted. And if the ballot count is the same as the electronic, 
Good. They count electronic. If not, they count every ballot. In the United States, we fight audits. We fight recounts. There, it's part of the system. And they call it, we call it a dictatorship. Our democracy? Really? I mean, really? We have two parties run by Wall Street. I mean, and we, we call them a dictatorship. So anyway, let me get back to the Venezuelan embassy. Uh, I can talk about democracy for a long time. But on the embassy, I'll, I'll start focusing on the end of the time we were there, because we've heard the beginning, you've seen pictures here of how we decorated the embassy uh, with our message, so that we knew that we wouldn't get a lot of media, but we wanted to make sure that there's a picture taken, our message was displayed. And so we spent a lot, we had great art bills, you've seen some pictures of the kids making artwork, and we cut up an old, an old banner from a, our, our campaign to end the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That big, that big no-coup banner was stop the corporate coup, stop the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We cut that up and sewed it and made it into an appropriate banner for this embassy. Uh, so, you know, we made an effort to make sure we got our message out with Little Medium. And it went great for the first few weeks. I mean, you see these massive forums we had. But then uh, there was a, a coup attempt in Caracas on uh, April 30th. And we got word that coup was, ha- that coup was happening. Uh, we were told that uh, they expected they could handle it in Caracas with no problem. And they did. Within two hours, it was over. Uh, but that we should expect problems at the embassy. And in fact, there were problems at the embassy. We were actually, Amy Goodman was out there that morning and interviewing us. And as we were leaving, the opposition started showing up. And we had a very intense conflict that day. Margaret, we, we, were, we were blocked at the front of the embassy. And they were trying to come over us. And it was a, we had to block the embassy front. It was a real conflict. And we had to keep things calm. So Margaret sang for like eight hours. It was incredible. All these peace songs and movement songs. It was like every time things started to get a little riled up, Margaret would get the mic and start singing. And uh, we'd all join in. So it was, it was an amazing... Uh, and we were out there. And Kay was out there. Oh, man, that was amazing. It was an amazing scene. And we stayed out overnight. We were out there overnight to protect that. David was there. Uh, well, I could go through every person here and say great things about them. These were great comrades. These, each one of them brought incredible talent. And they're all great spokespeople, too, for the cause. And we're trying to use this case to build the movement and raise consciousness. Uh, And no matter how this case turns out, whether we end up in jail or end up acquitted, whether we get a fair trial or an unfair trial, we are going to use this federal prosecution to build the movement to stop this coup because Venezuela is not going to lose its independence. And that's not me talking. That's the Venezuelan people talking. They will not lose their independence. And when they succeed, the Monroe Doctrine is finished. The end of U.S. domination of Latin America. That's what this is about. That's what this is about. And so uh, as it started to develop, the coup starts to develop, the people are starting to work. Now we're surrounded by a mob outside. I mean, a siege mob. Uh, they are blocking food from entering the embassy. People try to bring food. Uh, they get blocked. People try to throw food. Uh, one of the code pink folks, Ariel Gold, who tried to throw some, um, some lettuce up. And she was arrested for throwing a missile. Uh, you can see uh, Jerry, maybe makes the picture here of Jerry Condon, uh, the president of Veterans for Peace, bloody face. Uh, he was trying to throw me a cucumber. Uh, we, were, we, were, we were on the second floor. They were down there trying to get food. We would throw a bag out, and they would put the food in the bag, but there was just too much melee going on. It couldn't work. And so I saw Jerry had a cucumber, so I put my hands out like that, and he started to throw the cucumber, and he was on the ground. Bloody face. And that was the last day 
that the Secret Service was out there. When they did that to Jerry Conn, they were gone. And things did get better when the Secret Service left. Uh, but that violent attack on the president of Veterans for Peace was a tremendous political error uh, by, by, by the uh, Secret Service. And so we're in this situation now where the, the coup mob is surrounding the embassy, uh, where they've broken in the windows and come into the embassy. Uh, we had one guy break in the window, go to the third floor, barricade himself in, and we had to deal with the problem of how do we let the police in. They can't violate the embassy under international law. Under the Vienna Convention, embassies are inviolate. The host country cannot come in. And so what do we do? We had to negotiate with the Venezuelan authorities to get permission for a limited waiver of inviolability, negotiate with the police, how we did it, how, you know, who could go with the police, and what they could bring. And, and so two cops came up, got the guy out. Our people filmed him. Did you film it? Some, I'm not sure who filmed it. One, one, of the folk, one, of our, one of our folks filmed the whole process of this guy being removed. And, so we did, and then they broke a door in the basement, so we couldn't close the door anymore. We had to blockade that door with wood. We, could, we found some uh, old doors. We blockaded that door. We, pushed a, we had a van. One of the embassy um, personnel left a van, van in the garage. We had the key. We parked the van up against the door to stop it from being pushed in. They still found ways to get in. We had to keep, we had to, you slept down there. Uh, yeah, we, slept, we, we all took turns sleeping in the garage. Uh, when, they when they tried to break in, so we could be aware. And Mar I know what was near the end. Margaret was hoping they would try to break in. She wanted to slap their hands so bad when they were pushing that door aside, but they didn't. <laughs> I was just ready. Because <laughs> they would stick their arm through. We're very peaceful. We're very peaceful. Uh, and, and so um, it would, that was the constant conflict. And we heard, we heard them outside, the, the, uh, the pro coup people, on a telephone saying that they were trying to terrorize us out. They were telling their, their allies. That's what they were there doing, trying to terrorize us out because they knew that the police could not come in unless they violated the law. So they had to terrorize us out. So they were blocking our food. Then they turned off our electricity. Then they turned off our water. And that made us more in solidarity with Venezuela because when we were in Venezuela, we saw the same kind of tactics. Food being blocked, medicine being blocked, lights, electricity, water... So we felt, you know, we were living a small piece of what they dealt with. So it was incredible solidarity. And that was one of the beautiful things about this, the solidarity we got from Venezuela. We had this pro-coup mob out there, which was a mixture of Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, Cubans, right-wingers who had fled their countries when the progressive and left governments came in. They had fled, and now they were in the United States. That was the pro-coup mob. And there's some great research on who these people were, defense contractors, lobbyists, big PR firms, you know, moneyed interests who would profit from a coup. That's who was out there. Uh, and, and, and so you know, when we saw these marches, solidarity marches for us in Venezuela, oh, my God. I mean, with the coup out there. Margaret, you're a hero. David, you're a hero. I didn't see a Kevin, you're a hero. Uh, and so I was giving a lecture. I was, I was giving a lecture. I know. I was giving a lecture in California, and there was a we had on this slideshow. I don't know if it's still up there or not. A little picture where I saw Kevin as a hero. So I, you know, uh, anyway. Don't worry, you're a hero. Kevin, you're a hero. That's okay. okay. But it was really, and they, they would they would send. Oh my God, the love song they sent for Adrian. Oh my. Oh my God, Adrian! Oh my God, it was an amazing love song that was sent from Cuba. Oh my God, it was amazing. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. 
So we got these songs and all the people are just and so I'm out there and we're getting that from the from the internet. Oh my god. So anyway, where am I? Uh, oh, so it's getting bad, and uh, so the the who tries and the mob is out there. We're getting under siege, and more and more of our people are showing up. It's fantastic. And then um, at some point, uh, the, the few days before we get arrested, the police decide to give us an eviction notice. And it was a very strange eviction notice. Uh, it was on an eight and a half, eleven piece of paper. First of all, they put them all on the walls, and we couldn't really read them because we were inside. Uh, but they did it right on a loudspeaker too, uh, so we could hear it. Uh, and they, they did come to the door, and we, our lawyer Mara Verhaden Hilliard of uh, Partnership for Civil Justice, a great, great source in Washington, and we've done some fantastic work together. And the energy. And then oh, well, I'll get to that in a second. Uh, so the pro the, the eviction notice comes. And it's on this eight and a half, eleven piece of paper. No agency, no letterhead, no signature. Uh, it mentions this guy Carlos Vecchio, who we knew was a former oil executive, uh, who's now, by the way, being investigated for embezzlement from Citgo by the by the U.S. Department of Justice. Uh, and uh, we knew that he uh, was pretending to be an ambassador as part of the, the failed coup. And it's such an ama- amazing thing, this coup most open coup in U.S. history, and it's failed and failed and failed. It's so embarrassing for the United States. This guy, Guaido, I mean, I just... And then what? The New York Times. I mean, what is with them? Did you see this report in the New York Times? Did you see this uh, phony thing, Guaido climbing the fence of the National Assembly? You know, he was actually... There's a video of him. You can come in, Guaido. Juan Guaido, come on in. He, he wants to climb the fence. You know, and so, and so and New York Times has an, op-ed, uh, uh, an opinion piece about it. The heroic climb of the fence by Juan Guaido has ignited new international support. The heroic climb? It's a tragic comedy. It's not a heroic climb. Oh, my God. But that's the New York Times. And the Washington Post is, is equally bad. I mean, the, the, and I'm ashamed that our media and our, our judge are reading this media, the judge, the jury, they're reading this crappy media of lies. It's just, so it's a real challenge for our court case. But anyway, uh, so they give us this uh, eviction notice. Mara had negotiated that we would do it at the front door. We'd wait in the lobby. They cut the chains that were put on by the Venezuelan embassy staff. They cut the chains, the fire, they cut the chains, opened the door. They came to the door. They didn't walk into the embassy. They put the eviction notices on the ground in front of us. And they said, would you voluntarily? We said, no, we're not going to leave. We're here legally. We are here with the permission of the elected government of Venezuela. Margaret said, here's my key. Uh, and uh, we said, if you come in, you're violating the Vienna Convention. You're violating the law. We're not violating the law. And if you violate that law, it becomes the law of the jungle at embassies around the world. What that means is, if a U.S. embassy is attacked in a year or two years, if embassy personnel are attacked in a year or two years, think back to this moment when you cross this threshold. When you violate international law and set the standard of the law of the jungle, rather than rule of law. And we said that uh, there's right now a conflict between uh, Venezuela and the United States, Colombia and Brazil on the side of the U.S., China and Russia on the side of Venezuela, and we're trying to de-escalate this conflict because a conflict in Venezuela could first of all become a regional conflict with Colombia and Brazil and a global conflict with Russia and China. Do you want to cross that threshold, violate international law, and escalate that conflict and tell your grandchildren you're the one who started this global conflict? Do you want to really do that? And we told them, it's time for you to go back to your superiors 
and tell them that we have to rethink this because it's a, it's a major step regarding violating international law. Shockingly, they turned around and left. <laughs> uh, and we realized that we were right. We were there legally, and they were there illegally. So we knew our lawyer's advice. And that day, by the way, we got a fantastic letter organized by the National Lawyers Guild. More than 500 lawyers signed on a letter saying that we were in the embassy legally, that our human rights should be respected, and the Vienna Convention should be respected. National Lawyers Guild uh, steering committee member right here. Uh, and uh, they're, they're one of the uh, sponsors of this event. And uh, we really appreciate that. That was fantastic the same day we get the eviction notice. So who do we believe? The, this uh, eviction notice with no letterhead, no signature, and a fake ambassador or the National Lawyers Guild, our lawyer, uh, you know, the people in Venezuela. Who could we believe? And so we, we stayed. And we, we didn't know what the government was going to do next. Were they going to violate the law or not? And so the next, the next day, was the next day? Two days later, Jesse Jackson shows up. Uh, Jesse Jackson is about 80. He has Parkinson's disease. He's struggling. He showed up for us. And uh, he, uh, he has, Parkinson's has a hard problem with your vocal cords, and so he had a hard time speaking. So we did like a mic, the people outside did like a mic check for the press conference. He would say something, the people would repeat it to the press. After we finished that, uh, Copen gave him three bags of food. You can see pictures of here. Oh, well, that's me. You know, when the power was out, we said we're still staying. That, 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 uh, he walks these three bags of food over to the window, and uh, we're at the window. Should we throw the bag out to get the food? There's a big crowd of uh, pro-coup mob, this big black alliance for peace, and other of our supporters are out there uh, trying to position with the pro-coup mob. The cops are watching, not showing what um, the, the uh, pro-coup mob is <coughs> You know, fighting with that, and so at one point they say, "Throw the bag, throw the bag." So I threw the bag. Uh, they grabbed it. One of the pro coup guys wrapped the rope around his arm. Our people are trying to get the rope off. Ajamu Baraka, our vice presidential candidate for the Green Party, my kind of vice president, fights for our food. Uh, he, he's out there. He's uh, trying to grab the uh, rope off the guy's arm and to get the bag free. We fill it up, pull it up, pull it up two floors, and we have food. I mean, uh, we never ran out of food, by the way. David David Paul was a Nazi when it comes to Stop. Be nice. was was a hardliner uh, <laughs> a tyrant a tyrant when it came when it came when it came to keeping our calories down we had we had very we all lost weight I lost ten pounds you lost eight, eight, twelve twelve I mean, we we all we all lost weight but we never ran out of food we just kind of had limited food lots of peanut butter and jelly. We made these fantastic burritos with tuna fish, you know, tuna fish in the can, seafood, seafood tacos. We uh, heard about the fantastic pasta from cold water. You let it sit for a few hours. You, it's just like hot water. Uh, didn't work. Didn't work for rice though. That didn't get better. That, that rotted with the water. And we also, by the way, when we, we were running out of electricity, we, we, would, we would go into the car to charge our phones. And when the car was getting hot, we would cook food on the engine. Uh, and so we did that. We also had a solar cooker on the roof. And anyway, also, we, you know, the embassy protectors cookbook, if you want to sign up for it, uh, it'll be coming out in the future, so feel free to sign up for that. So anyway, when Jesse broke through, that was a sign for uh, that we could have a lot of other people break through. Because Jesse, that's one of the roles he's played in history, is he comes first, then others follow. And so maybe Tulsi would have come, maybe Mike Gravel, maybe some celebrities would come. 
you know, also, uh, yeah. Roger, what, when I, when you saw that picture of me doing that, uh, we were, did this, when the electricity, we did a little t- a live stream saying we're still here with the lights out. Roger Waters then did a, a, a video uh, himself of In the Dark saying support us and eating out of, 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 of beans out of a can to show solidarity with us. So things were breaking through. And uh, it, it meant that the media was also starting to break through with Jesse showing up. And Jesse promised to come back with more preachers that Sunday. And so before Jesse came back, they decided to uh, break in and arrest us. And I say break in. They could have just cut the, the plastic cuffs they had put on the front door when we had our first confrontation. But instead, they brought a battering ram, 100 police plus, uh, five different police forces, military gear, uh, we have sent an email to them saying, we're not going to resist, we're not going to hide, we're not going to barricade ourselves. If you come in, we will not resist. Uh, but, and we will take care of it later. Your illegal arrest will be accounted for later. Uh, and so we were not, and they, so they knew we weren't going to resist. And uh, they still came in with this military police force, battering ram on the door. They called in the morning, just after we finished breakfast, they get a phone call, this is the police, we have an arrest warrant for you, come out now or we're coming in. I said, I'm calling my lawyer. Uh, I, I called Mara, she's trying to get there as quick as she could. And uh, we started hearing the battering ram. Bam! It was like, oh, it was, the building was shaking. Uh, and uh, they got in. 20, how many cops were in the conference room? 17, 17, 17 cops in the conference room with the four of us. A uh, bunch more outside on the roof and on everywhere. And, uh, uh, you know, they, we, we didn't resist. Margaret gave them a lecture. Margaret didn't stop talking. She gave them a lecture about the Vienna Convention and that they were illegal. It was a great lecture. It was a great lecture. Uh, and we tried to tell them they were breaking the law, but they continued anyway. And uh, we were arrested. Uh, they could have taken us to the magistrate that day. The magistrate meets in Washington, D.C. at 1.30. It was about 9 o'clock in the morning. Instead, they took their time and took us to a police precinct, held us there for a few hours. Uh, and then they took us to central booking, held us overnight. They could have done it all in one day, but they wanted to give us a night in jail. So we got a night in jail. No charge. Free. With free food. Fantastic. Bologna and white bread. Do we have cheese on those? No cheese, just bologna and white bread. I didn't eat Oh, they were. It was. I don't know how they, how people in prison deal with that. It's just the, 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 how we treat prisoners in this country is a disgrace. And we saw just a piece of it. But I remember this was my first arrest, which was a medical marijuana arrest when John Ashcroft was in. I'm so fucking long. Anyway, uh, so we've been arrested. We're facing federal charges. Uh, the charges we're facing are interfering with protective function. And it's a very strange charge. They didn't charge us with trespass. They didn't charge us with unlawful entry because we didn't do either. So we're charged with interfering with protective function. We thought we were the embassy protectors, so we find it an unusual charge. But we're in a situation where the Trump prosecutor is saying we can't tell the jury Maduro was president. They can't be told that Guaido's not the president. They can't be told that Vecchio's not really an ambassador. They can't be told that we were there legally with the permission of the embassy, of the elected government of Venezuela. Uh, we can't be told that there was a mob that was uh, threatening us on the outside, blocking our food. None of that's allowed. That's what the Trump prosecutors want. We'll find out on the 29th if the judge agrees, and I'm a little worried she will agree. Uh, so we may have a kind of a trial where the whole truth and nothing but the truth will not be told, <laughs> where the jury will wear the blindfold of justice in a new way, not of unbiased blindfold, of a, but of ignorance, a blindfold of ignorance, and so we've been doing this turn not just to raise conscience, but also to raise money uh, for our criminal, def- our legal defense fund. We have a fantastic defense team, the, the, the committee that we were so happy when this committee formed because it was the four of us against the United States, and to have the community come together 
and support us was just a fantastic thing. It's been fantastic everywhere we've gone. Uh, we so appreciate uh, people's support. And as I said, we are, going to, we are using this prosecution, no matter how it turns out, to continue to build the movement <coughs> to stop the Venezuelan coup, stop U.S. domination of Latin America, end the Monroe Doctrine, and lead to an end of U.S. interventions around the world. It's time for that to end. So, thank you all very much for coming. Sorry I talked so long. <laughs>